0: Wildling Press presents How Do I Book? Welcome to How Do I Book by Wildling Press. We like to chat about book writing, book publishing, book marketing, and, of course, book reading. We're trying to help new and experienced authors develop their craft, widen their perspectives, and learn to get a little wild every once in a while. I'm Christina. I'm Grace.
1: And I'm Michael.
0: And I have brought you two here today to <laughs> regurgitate to you a lesson that I learned in one of my college English classes that oh my gosh. has stuck with me ever since.
2: That's amazing. I'm so excited for this because uh, I want, obviously Christina is our resident linguist. Uh, so yes. she is really coming from a place of knowledge here.
0: Yeah. So I, I want to talk to you guys um, about the linguistic facts of life. This is a list developed by linguist, Dr. Rosina lippi green. And I, learned this in my language, gender, and power class that I took when I was in college. The textbook that this is from is called English with an Accent. This whole class was about, yeah, like linguistics when it, the linguistic applications on socioeconomics, kind of, and like, uh, like identity politics. You know what I mean? Yes. I'm just gonna share with you these linguistic facts of life that were developed by dr lippy green because um, i think that they apply so much they're, they're just really good like guidelines to keep in mind when you're communicating with other people when you're writing your own creative writing um just being out in the world and dealing with language i think they're just really important things to know and think about and reflect upon so are y'all ready
2: i'm so ready i'm taking I'm it ready. back
0: taking it back so to the hyped. classroom yes Okay, so the first linguistic fact of life is that all spoken language changes over time. So that means that language is like this living, breathing thing. It exists because we use it all the time and there is no way to use something like that without it just inherently developing all the time to like better suit our needs. And our needs are developing constantly. So, like, we don't really have a a reason to use the word chamber pot anymore. It's not in, like, common use. So, like, a kid maybe wouldn't have heard it unless they've done some, like, advanced reading. So, like, we don't have a use for that word. But, like, back in the 1500s, they didn't have a use for the word pager. That's a fun one because we don't need that anymore either, do we? (laughs) So, it's like language really rises to, like, meet the occasion as Societal needs for different kinds of language changes over time. So, if you just like kind of get it in your brain that like language is not and this is like really hard for editors, I think sometimes, that language is not this like fixed thing that you can just tell people how to do it and you have to do it right. Yeah. You know, it's like there are even when you're working technically like we do as editors, there are things you have to figure out and like accommodations you have to make for different circumstances. Yeah, totally. The next linguistic fact of life is that all spoken languages are equal in linguistic terms, right? You probably feel like you speak normal, right? Yeah. Like it's especially easy for us as like mid Atlantic uh, Americans to be like, we speak like standard American English, Mm -hmm. right? But like standard American English is a fake thing. No one speaks in a standard way Everyone speaks differently. People who speak English with like a, a Southern accent or an Appalachian accent or a British accent, those are all valid. But even further than that, like other languages are as linguistically valid as English. Mm-hmm. English is used all over the world, so people really love it. Um but on the flip side, a lot of people, especially. Like language historians think that English is like a garbage language because it is. It's like this terrible result of just so much imperialism. But it's like it's equal to like a pigeon language or um, a, a p i d g i n. Not like a not like a bird. I don't language. know what
2: I don't know what that is. Can you de- define that?
0: Yes, a pigeon language is like when two languages come together and have to. It's like like Spanglish is like oh, a pigeon language. Okay. So it's like if two groups of people are isolated in, in this in this place that where they have to speak like or not isolated, but if they're put together in a place where they have to communicate, but they have two different languages, that what the way that they speak becomes like a pigeon.
1: Mm. nice. Because when you first said it, I was picturing the talking pigeons from
0: Animaniacs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if anybody knows that reference.
0: I don't. I haven't seen Animaniacs in probably 25 years.
1: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So they re-released it a while ago, but I'm not going to plug that. Oh, yeah. Because I didn't watch it, so I don't know if it (laughs) held up to the 90s.
0: We cannot confirm nor deny. Yeah. Yeah, so basically, like, if ever somebody opens their mouth and the way they're speaking makes you judge them that, first of all, that's natural because that's just how humans operate. But it's also wrong. Yeah, It's also just wrong. So, like, for example, in African-American vernacular English, there's this trait where it's called metathesis. It's where two letters get switched in speech. So we have the very classic "ax" instead of ask because uh-huh. those two letters, K and S, get metathesized. Yeah. That is not an invalid thing to do. Like, the fact that humans... In a place together, use axe act, over ask is like a valid choice that happens for a linguistic reason, metathesis, which is like a very normal linguistic thing. Uh-huh. And they understand each other when they use that phrasing. So it's like it's no less valid than other language features that also just make sense to the group that they're intended for. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And
2: also, I think, like, everyone knows what that means. Like, everyone understands what that means.
0: Exactly. Well, and metathesis is actually, like, so common in the history of English. The example I like to use is that back in the day, the word for a pigeon and other uh, animals with wings was B-R-I-D, brid, brid. That's literally what that animal was called, B-R-I-D.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And that word metathesized, and now it means B it now it's B-I-R-D bird.
2: Wow. I had no so idea. So
0: that's how common it is. Yes. So, so like all ways of speaking are linguistically equal. And that includes when one person has to code switch. Uh-huh. So that's a phrase that people talk about a lot more now than they did when I was in college learning about this stuff. I I learned about code swishing before it was cool. But what that means is that like the way that I'm speaking right now on this podcast is not my normal speaking cadence. I typically swear a lot more. There's a lot more ums, ands or buts. I'm kind of doing a thing right now where I'm doing a rant about something I'm passionate about and know a lot about. So like, and I'm doing it in a professional setting to like a general audience. So like the kind, the way that I'm speaking right now is not the same as when I'm drinking beers with my friends, right? I speak differently in those two situations. Mm -hmm. So that's code switching. But code switching also applies to, for example, like I mentioned earlier, um, speakers of African American vernacular English might code switch into a more mainstream sounding, quote unquote, standard English in maybe like professional settings because of societal pressure that prefers those standard voices.
1: Yeah, and that's something, too, that I can, like, back up on as well, code-switching as being a member of the LGBTQIA community. You know, mm-hmm. it's very much so in a professional setting when I'm teaching somebody something or I don't like what they've done. You know, I say it differently, but I'm amongst my friends. It starts off with girl.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. And then I go into my <laughs>
1: sentence, you know.
0: Yeah, so we all code-switch to some extent, and some people are, are really pressured, forced societally to code-switch a lot more than other people. Yeah. But we all do it, and it's all valid. It's 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 all valid.
1: Yeah. you And actually, you're talking about this and what is normal. Uh, my first degree is actually in sociology. Oh, and yeah. I just forgot that my <laughs> my freshman year, very first class in college. The teacher asked a class of 45 plus people. And it was written on the board and said, what is normal? And we spent the entire class defining our normal so that when we walked out of there. He went, just so you know, for the next four years as you're studying this, normal doesn't exist.
0: Wow I feel like that's such like an early college almost like a caricature of like a college class you know what I mean. Yeah
1: (laughs) absolutely but you know so it's the the same thing with language you know the norm doesn't exist because your norm is not my norm.
0: Right and like I said like we live in the mid-Atlantic east coast which I think like a lot of Americans if you ask them to identify a standard American voice they might choose one of our voices but like even just in our little state of Virginia, I grew up outside of D.C., where speakle- people spoke one way, and then I went to college down in the Tidewater in Norfolk. And when I went back home, I ha- I had a Southern accent now. You know what yeah. I mean? So it's like, what even? It's not. It's not a real thing. Yeah,
1: I think one of my favorite things is to hear other countries an American accent because yes. they always like. I'd say like nine times out of ten, they put a vocal fry.
2: Uh huh. I'm the boys, like oh. yes. Or they you know. immediately go. They either go valley girl or totally southern.
0: Southern, yeah. Southern's easy to like commit to. Yes. Yeah, give Absolutely. it your all.
1: <laughs> I think it's funny because you know I do hear those different accents, so I know where you're grabbing this from. Especially if you're watching American television.
0: Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's totally. true. So our next linguistic fact of life is grammatical and communicative effectiveness are distinct. And separate issues. So this is like kind of like for the editors and also for the pretentious people who like to monitor other people's speech. So this, ta- this is talking about grammatical effectiveness and communicative effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Grammatical effectiveness is are the conventional grammatic rules used in this sentence, right? Communicative effectiveness is do people know what you're saying, right? Yeah. So I'm sure we've all before been like, uh, so how was the, uh, the, um, the thing last night, the thing, you know what I mean? And you do because you have this context together, you know, Mm -hmm. but grammatically, you know, that's not how you would like write something in a book. It's not, that's not like the way to grammatically communicate something. So these are like separate, kind of like I was talking about with like the ask X thing, like. If people can understand you, you're communicating effectively. And that is the point of language. It's to, like, communicate meaning effectively. And so in a lot of situations, maybe not book situations, but in a lot of situations, communicative effectiveness is more important than grammatical correctness. Yeah. So if you're saying something, you know, kind of like sometimes I, like I said, I'm from slightly the South. Um, Sometimes I use the word ain't, Right. Because it just, sometimes it just sounds good. You throw it in a sentence and it ain't a big deal. No, that one sounded really forced. That one wasn't good. Trying too hard. You know, and that's something that like my dad, for example, who has a DC boy English degree would, you know, possibly like mark me on. And marking is when you make note of the way someone else is using language. It's not good. You don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. So my dad would be like, are you drunk? You just said ain't, you know? And it's like, well, you surely knew what I was saying. So like, why fuss about it? Uh
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, people just get
0: fussy. People like to get fussy. Well, and it it comes back to to class. Um, Yeah. You know, if you speak correctly in like really dramatic air quotes, then it indicates that you're educated. Um, And so it's it's classism is what it comes down to. If people are judging you based on the way you speak, it's classism or racism or sexism. Yeah. None of it's good. It's bad. Don't do it. It's bad. Our next linguistic fact of life kind of ties back into that. Um, The next one is that written language and spoken language are historically, structurally, and functionally fundamentally different. Spoken language is a biological imperative that human brains, when they're developing as babies, their brains are like looking for language building blocks. There's this window of language acquisition. You've probably heard like... Myths and or real stories about children who were like abandoned and never developed language and never could uh-huh. because yeah. their brains never they didn't activate the language part of their brain when their brain needed that information so human beings like look for language. writing is a skill, like math or riding a bike or doing crochet, and some people are just like so good at doing crochet. You show them once and they got it now. Some people are never really going to be that good at crochet, no matter how much they practice, because their muscles aren't strong or dexterous or because they don't have the attention span or because they have a hard time counting stitches. So written language is like a skill. And some people are good at it and some people are bad at it. And that is so normal. Every skill has people that are good at it And people who are bad at it. Writing is different from speaking. Speaking is this like identity community thing that we all engage with together. It's like a group project and we all do it naturally. So you shouldn't judge someone's, you shouldn't judge someone based on how they write. You shouldn't expect anyone to speak the way we write. That's like the biggest one. Yeah. If you start marking people for speaking, in a way that's organic, instead of in a way that's like grammatically correct, that's a, a practice in madness. You're n- you're never gonna stop finding errors. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is a big old info dump for me. You're, you're doing, doing great. great. You're doing. Thank great. you so. I'm much. learning a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is my passion, and I really did major in linguistics, and it just so doesn't matter in my contemporary life, other than me just slightly applying it sometimes to, like, social justice stuff. So, like, yeah. pretty much me telling other people the linguistic facts of life is, like, all my <laughs> college education has done for me.
2: I think it's great, though, because this is a great reminder. I mean, like, as an editor, you get, mm-hmm. you get like, in that mindset of, like, well, this is right and this is wrong. And right. there's just so much more nuance to it, especially in terms of oral communication. So... Yeah. I love this. This is awesome.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's something to keep in mind when you're editing a manuscript as you're going back and forth between the narrative and the dialogue. Yeah, for sure. The dialogue does not have to be as crisply edited as the narrative does. Yeah,
2: because that's like also just less authentic and Mm -hmm. it might take the reader out of it. It's not true to the characters.
0: Right. Yeah, so linguistics is, uh, is the scientific study of speech. Linguistics doesn't have anything to do with writing and, mm-hmm. and any more than any other subject needs to write stuff down because it's academia linguistics is about speech and so like the the writing part is, is not part of it when we talk about the alphabet in linguistics we don't talk about the 26 letter American English alphabet we talk about the international phonetic alphabet where the letters represent sounds instead of like they're very interpretive the way we use our 26 letter alphabet mm-hmm in linguistics we don't talk about sentences we talk about utterances because an utterance is different from a sentence a complete sentence needs a subject and a predicate and punctuation but a, an utterance can be even just like a ha like a, a thought like a like a couple words that you know what i mean it doesn't have to be it's not the same thing it, yeah and it's just not the same thing our very last linguistic fact of life and thank you so much for sticking with me this far Variation is intrinsic to all spoken language at every level. Variation in language is the norm. When there's no variation in language, that is a dead language. That's Latin, right? Mm -hmm. It does not change. It does not vary. People do not use it, really. It's a dead language. So celebrate all of the variation that happens all the time in language. It's so cool. It's so cool how language can change to meet our needs, especially because of the Internet. You know, we can make that change happen so much more quickly now. It's just really cool to be part of its journey and watch it happen. Amazing.
1: And one other thing I jump in there because back to the sociology study, Mm -hmm. my degree, uh, we would discuss linguistics. And, um, of course, it's a theory because you can't really go back and ask cave people, you know, at least we don't, I don't know if there's a time machine yet to go back and ask cave people right. about this or not. But one of the um, theories about the earliest forms of communication was uh, actually why we all will yawn when someone else yawns around oh, us. Yeah. And it's believed that, you know, back in the long, long time ago, that uh, because there wasn't a language, when someone yawned, you would yawn at them to show them camaraderie and that you are not a threat
2: oh it's like a solidarity
0: yawn. right when your friend yawns you yawn too exactly so it's
1: actually they they believe it's ingrained just in us as humans that we yawn to show solidarity
0: yeah Yeah, celebrate your yawns as well (laughs) oh that's cool i love
2: this like i said i think that we do see resistance sometimes to language changing and I think this is a great reminder to if you catch yourself being like uncomfortable with a language change or something like that to remind yourself like what's the source and instead of being uncomfortable about it be excited about it
0: yeah yeah it's really just um it's really just like hey chill out like don't worry so much like some languages, like French, for example, uh, has a French Academy of Language that tries to like definitively prescribe the rules of French. And it's just like, it's cool to document. So here's a term that I haven't introduced yet. There's a difference between like prescriptive and descriptive, right? Mm-hmm. Prescriptive is when you're like, this is how you should do something. Descriptive is when you're like, this is how people are doing something. Right. And you know, linguistics values that descriptive so much more. We don't, we don't care, nor do we believe that there's a way anyone should be doing anything. What we want to know is what people are doing and why are they doing it like that? What does that mean about what else is happening in the world? That language is changing in this way. Yeah. And it's just so much more exciting to worry about that than worrying about what other people are saying and how they're saying it. And if you think it's good or not, you know what I mean? Totally. Mm -hmm. So those are the linguistic facts of life, and that's how you book. This episode was written and edited by me, Christina Kahn. Our logo was designed by Michael Hardison. Our theme music was produced by Jason Hilton. Please check out the show notes for a link to the accompanying blog post and visit us online at Wildling Press on social media or at www.wildlingpress.com.